Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Productize Podcast. This Productize podcast is produced by Productize. As you know, this is a series of interviews with product innovators, successful makers, and entrepreneurs. We hope those who listen to the ideas on this show are inspired to action. So for show notes and additional resources related to today's podcast, you can visit us at productize.medium.com. Today... It's a very special episode for lots of good reasons. Uh, the first reason is that this is the 88th episode of the Productized Podcast. So we've been doing this for quite a long time now. And this is also a, a very special episode because it's the first one from our studio. It's the first one that we're doing live and it's the first one from the studio with uh, in-person uh, guests. My name is André Marquis, and I'm your host, and I'm delighted to be talking with the founder and CEO of Matter Dynamics, Tiago Cunha-Reis. Hi, Tiago. Hi, guys. Hi, André. <laughs> Thanks for coming. So let me just give you a, a quick, um, quick bio note on Tiago. So Tiago is a founder and CEO of Matter Dynamics. He holds a PhD from the Nova University of Lisbon and uh, MIT in bioengineering systems. And Tiago's expertise relies in microelectronics and data science with a specialization in natural user interfaces. Tiago loves to merge deep tech and business opportunities, uh, whether researching in the lab or reading the most recent advances in electronics and computer science. He strives to simplify complex architectures into feasible and business-friendly solutions. If you find whales in the ocean, you will probably also find Tiago on the floor of a warehouse with his laptop deploying metadynamic solutions. He often says, it's my natural environment. In addition, is also an associate professor and, uh, and is also a national and international researcher with academic projects uh, and is contributing to the open source libraries and courses. Uh, Tiago digs deep into activities to reduce digital illiteracy. So before we actually dive in, let me welcome Tiago to, uh, to the show and ask you how is life going and where are you actually working from nowadays? Okay, once again, Thank you, Andre, for the opportunity. And um, how I'm doing? Uh, actually, pretty great. Uh, right now, we have like this challenge uh, that has been put by Mark Zuckerberg that is trying to push the academia towards the metaverse. So everybody in data science trying to understand new ways that you can actually go to the other universe. So as you can imagine, a lot of papers to read, a lot of discussions to do it on Reddit, on Discord on uh, Stack Overflow and things like that. So very excited, but also at the same time, very surprised with the advance that we have been seeing in the last couple of weeks, for example. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the metaverse. Uh, what is there, is there anything going on there already? Oh yeah, uh, actually on last, I think yesterday, uh, there is this Chinese company, uh, which is proprietary of a website called The Sandbox. And it is the first deployable and scalable game that you can actually play. And while you are playing, the business model is to mine crypto coins and actually produce NFTs and sell those NFTs in the marketplace. So imagine the, what you are doing in a mobile app as a trader. Now you can actually do it with a game. So actually you can see it that like in five years from now, you'll see like games that will pay you to play them and not the other way around. Yeah, I think you already do that, right? You already have games that are actually paying you. But not in that scale. Pay. So that Sandbox scale. and the token, which is Sand, it's like crazy increasing the prices. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that people are actually being tangible mm -hmm. about that. So just to just a quick example, Adidas opened a store on Sandbox. 
Snoop Dogg, which is a rapper, and also yep. LVC bought land on on Sandbox to display his NFTs. Are you playing around with Sandbox? Uh, not really. I'm more interested on the idea of how we can actually build a small blockchain inside a blockchain. So, and the thing here is that if you go to back to the 90s, early 20, uh, 2000s uh, years, uh, what you see is that you have like this concept of microtransaction. You pay a small amount of money to uh, gain a new skin for, uh, for something that you need in the game. Right. Um, that is very specific and depends a lot on the game that you're playing. And I'm more concerned about these microtransactions that you can do with different cryptocurrencies besides Bitcoin, for example, and Sandbox, for example. Mm -hmm. So before we actually dig deeper on the crypto space, um, I'm actually interested. Um, are, have you always been this curious about technology? What age did you actually become interested in, in tech? And how did your career path um, look like when you were a young kid? You know, people were telling you, hey, Tiago, you really need to be a science freak or was this like a self-discovery process? Okay, I will give you two stories that are actually true. Uh, one of them, my mom is not so proud about that, <laughs> uh, but I tell you. So as a kid, I have a Game Boy, right? And the problem with Game Boy is like that- Like one you, of those original Game Boys. Yeah, the, the original ones. Uh, and the problem with Game Boys is that you ran out of battery. Mm -hmm. So I was pissed off of asking my parents to buy me the batteries all the time. So I started to think myself, can I recharge the batteries? Of course, I was only eight years old. I didn't know a lot about electrochemistry, but I actually tried to to build a small kit to to charge the cell, uh, the the batteries through the power of sun. Of course, problem didn't being, work. they were not rechargeable. No, batteries. yeah, that is uh, I missed the basics, but I was curious mm -hmm. and I had a need and I tried to solve how, it. How old were you? Uh, eight years old. Right. Eight years old. So this is in the middle of my elementary school, and, and the result was and. Of course, is you are not charging, so what you do next? We increase the power. So let's put it on the <laughs> oven. And as you can imagine, that putting batteries, cell coins, and batteries on the oven is not a good idea. And my mom stopped no. completely. This is one story. The other story is that um, when I come from home, there was these uh, TV, ki uh, these kids shows uh, with a Muppet called Doctor Kubaya. I don't know the translation in English, mm. and it was very very cool. So it was a Muppet that will show things such as like if you put ink on a piece of water. And you put a rose on that water. After two days, the 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 petals of the rose will gain the color of right. the ink. Exactly. And that is was like magic for me, right? Mm -hmm. And they go a little deeper because they actually explain you how you can recycle paper, uh, recycle paper, but not only the recycling process, but you can actually build like physical structure that can sustain weight. So I starting to be like small bridges and things like that. Mm. So I was very curious, curious in the elementary school. But at the same time, at that moment, society offered me a lot of ways to find the solutions for my curiosity. And of course, you, we, we don't have the means like the technology for that. But for sure, that was different times because now nowadays what you see is like pandas and uh, kangaroos on right. the internet and telling you how, how good you should be in school, but not actually teaching something that you can catch on. Yeah, curiosity, you know, I know you have kids. Uh, you have two kids, right? Yeah. Uh, ages five? Uh, four and two. Four and two, right. I have three kids as well. So um, curiosity, curiosity is really the cornerstone of everything because the kids are not curious. It doesn't matter what you do, right? They're just going to say, yeah, just just give me my video game or just, I don't know, just what, let me watch my, my cartoons. I don't care so much about it. Um, where was that curiosity coming from? That is one question. And the second question is, when you look to your kids nowadays, what kind of um, go-to places um, or strategies to use to kind of boost their natural curiosity and try to develop it? Okay, so being openly, uh, I come from a low-income uh, low family. So my father has the sixth grave and my mother has the fourth grave only. So curiosity was something that was self-imposed, at least show uh, at my home. Was not? No, was not at all. So as you can imagine, like reading boots is something that my parents did, didn't do at all. Mm -hmm. um, but here is the what I... I and I will bring it to my kids. 
which is the thing. I, I do believe there are personal traits that you have when you're born, right? And things that are neurologically binded to who you are. Of course, you can improve them. You will lose some of them in the process. And that is something that I was really, really curious about. So one of the things that my family and my friends at the time was very odd to them is that I started a sport. I did it during two years, like ping pong, karate, swimming, and so on. And I was enough of it, and I need the next big thing. And right. I was always trying to push it. But the very end, after like when you are 15 or 16, I did know all the rules of the sports, and I brought that with myself. At, at the same age, I started to coding myself. So the logic of how to beat competition, what different strengths and weaknesses you can find in yourself, was a very um, extra value for myself. But um, this is back when I was 16, right? I didn't understand anything about neuroscience. I was not reading at all. And what happens is that we do believe that our brain is like produced as the moment as you burn. It's not true at all. And there is something called myelin, which is something that will connect your neurons in a more efficient way. And the process is that you, you start on the back of your brain and goes up to the front as soon as you're getting older. So as this is really important because this is the way that you have to build a very productive brain. So myelin. when you are exploring... Myelin is like a chemical producing the brain. So you have the neurons that are like electrical wires. Right. And you can imagine that if you have electrical wires in any computing device, you need to insulate them. So myelin is a way to insulate those electrical wires. And in the process of insulating them, you are capturing the signal in a more strong presence uh, during the communications. And this is something that kids don't have at all. They start to develop the myelin from the back of their mind up to the front. And it is very, very important. This process is very, very important because only at the age 25, you have like your brain full uh, cover with myelin. myelin. So there you are actually understand your brain and who you are as a personality. Okay, kids, if you are under 25, and I, I, we actually have people uh, following us that are well below uh, 25, you know, sometimes 20, 21, you don't have all your myelin in the brain. Yeah, and the consequence of that is that you are more open to experience because mm -hmm. you can like have like different circuits at the same time, open at the same time. This is why you find like in a in a in a school on a on a subset of ten people they are so different. But if you go to a corporate world at the, at the age fifty, they are not so different, right? And people told in back in the nineties that is this is the social con um, conditioning of the process of development. No, it's a neurobiological conditioning right. and the social co conditioning of that stuff. That is why I, I didn't know if you if you recall when you were a kid on Wednesdays you would love to be a football a football player, but on next Friday you want to be I don't know a mechanic and so right. on. And this part of this process of not having the myelin fully development. You are open to experience because your circuits are more exposed. Okay. That is, you know, a great neurological, electronic <laughs> uh, way of seeing the brain. Um, but so looking back, right, would you change anything about your decisions? Because I just got hold of this, not having all your myelin in place. Did you ever consider any other career paths? Uh, yeah, um, probably at, after my master, I will take two years at least uh, working in a big company because that, I went straight from the master to the PhD. All right. So that's what you did. Um, I, go, I went straight to the PhD. Right. At, if I had the opportunity, I would sub two years to gain more ex real world experience. So that's what you're it. recommending people yeah. to do. Yeah. Lots of people say that when you do that, and lots of people do that, right? I, I did my master's, I went working, and, and then I never considered doing my PhD. And that is actually the problem, is that people start working, they start making two, 2K, 3K, or at least here in Portugal. Uh, and then they don't want to go back to the PhD life of, you know, going to a scholarship, um, having like this shitty 1,000 euro um, scholars to study. Um, so how do you kind of go through that? Because I, I think that's preventing lots of good people to actually go into PhDs. What I will do for myself is something that will not apply to everybody, for sure. Right. Um, but the thing is that um, as a, my personality is a personality that bats on long term. Mm -hmm. So 
I rather prefer to have like uh, a, um, doing a post graduation, for example, during a one year receiving fifty uh, percent uh, of my salary. But after that, I will gain more knowledge and expertise that I can leverage on the market labor, and uh, this is what we will do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, for those in that podi- position, there are two things that you t- need to keep in mind. The first one is that you develop as a person to pursue money, and you really need to understand if money is a, an action or is a consequence. If you are really good, I do believe that money comes to you, mm-hmm. and you should pursue value. So if you are, have more technical skills, you can actually deliver more value and will, of course, be paid for that. A good example are freelancers, right? Freelancers, they need to be really, really good, and of course, if they are really good, they keep at least they keep the the same type of clients. And the second thing is that when you actually going to the school, you are not only learning what you have in the books. You have actually the opportunity to build network. That is one of the things that MBAs try to sell the network community. And the other thing is that if you have a um, professional experience, you can actually translate your experience to the knowledge that you are retained from the books. Right. Absolutely. Um, but how would you go into this uh, choice of pursuing a PhD versus an MBA? Especially because lo- lots of kids nowadays, they have a, a master's. That's that's taken for granted. So for many, many years, the path would be you, you go work and then you do an, you do an MBA. You don't, either, you don't even consider a PhD. So is PhD actually the the right answer for people that want to pursue their their studies or would you no. think an, an MBA is, is is a good answer still or do we need another kind of post-grad training that is not being covered either by PhDs or MBAs that's right uh, I do believe that we some we need something I uh, knew and I like would tell technical you technical MBA or a data science MBA or how would uh, you go? I will call it like uh, post-graduation courses I think you should improve your set of skills professional skills based on what you actually want to learn and because you need to learn that uh, for example hmm. uh, I don't believe that everybody needs to learn computer science for data science I do believe that they need to have a hands-on uh, course on a language that can rely on data science and they understand the basics. Because even if you do an MBA or a PhD two years, four years, what will happen is that after 10 years, if you are actually in a very good field, the knowledge will renew quickly, okay? I can tell that the algorithms that I use during my PhD, they are not like top of the notch right now. So I don't need to do another PG. What I need is to learn how to think and analyze data and how to learn to, to study new, new, new things. And of course, if I have some difficulties because I'm needing, I need a tutor, I need a teacher, I will try to find that person or that course that will give me that power set of skills and I will take on, on it. And after that, depends on me to improve. And right. there are a lot of ways to do this. That's not what you did. You did a PhD. Yeah, that is why you asked me if I would let. I so, did a, but, but just to understand, so you would not be doing a PhD today? I would do it uh, maybe at the age of 35. I'm 34 years old. So I would at least wait 10 years of experience for a PhD, for an MBA if I was pursuing a business career, maybe only two years of um, working experience. Mm. All right. So how, how does the knowledge you have acquired during your PhD influenced the building of the data science course that you're now teaching okay. at, at, at Nova, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So uh, and if you want just to give us a glimpse of what that data science course is, that would be awesome. Yeah, okay, no worries. Um, so um, the first thing is that I did uh, a part of my PhD at MIT. So this is a very special place. I see kids with, at age 16 doing PhDs. And you actually, when they are showing their data, we are taking photos from their slides because we need to understand them after after the after the meeting um very very advanced people i had mentors that were uh, either awarded with a, a nobel prize or at least they were in the position to to win a, a nobel prize this is a very very special place and one of the things that i learned at mit is that you don't need to understand things you really no, need to not to understand it right. but t- at mit someone told me that you don't need to understand things you need to apply them, see the results, and then understand the results that you are retrieving your, with your knowledge. 
And that kind of approach that, why should I use certain library or module in Python for machine learning if I don't understand fully what he's giving to me is something that I'm deploying in my teaching uh, classes. So for example, um, if you are really eager to learn about data science, one of the exercises that I do a lot of the time is to provide real data, but was misleading. So for example, for vaccines, uh, you have like these countries with different percentage of vaccination and you infer conclusions telling that uh, Estonia is better than Bulgaria, I don't know. And you say, okay, because the percentage is higher, but it represents more individuals in Bulgaria and you need to, to, to somehow uh, put that in the mind of the students. So when you deal with data and you are trying to use information from, uh, from, um, from the, the kind of PhD that I have, you really need to put it on results as an engineer, try to understand your results, and then, yes, you understand the fundamental concepts of the data to begin with. So what is this data science course that you have built? Oh, it, this is something that, uh, so I, I, I'm a founder of a company called Matter Dynamics back to 2016. And, and since 2016, that is one major problem that I observe uh, across all the companies, regardless the size, which is they do not know how to deploy technology. And not because they lack of some rational skills, because they didn't understand the potential of the technology. It means that they don't understand the basics to understand the potential of technology. So I designed a course that I'm trying to, to, to put some students from different backgrounds, biology, marketing, where we will actually see what is computer science from the very basics and build on top of it. So as soon as you understand what is, what is a variable, how you can call data from different sources, how can you build functions, maybe you can actually show a case where you build a, a, tele, a, a bot for telemedicine or how to screen the genome to find mutations and things like that. Because in the tutorials that you see online, in different courses, you go into the classic examples. Let's print hello world and let's find character number nine and things like that. So I try to use the background of the students as real cases, deploy the code and then explain the code on their experience. And they, they will try to understand that. One of the examples that I do is the, with a chemical reaction. We have like this chemical reaction and you have an yield, which is, which is a pyramid and can go to, from zero to 100. And I do a mistake on purpose that I gain an, uh, a yield of 120. And the code, it's very beautiful and runs and everything is okay. But if you have a chemical engineering background, you are telling, okay, the code is correct, right. but the answer is not correct. Right. And this is the type of thing that I'm trying to push into the students, understand the data and not only retrieve Make the data. Make sense of real life data. Right, yep. because it's a percentage, so it doesn't make sense to have 100, 120% yield unless it's alchemy, not chemistry. Um, so this is a course inside. Um, so this is this like a course inside uh, which which engineering degree? Uh, so this is a, a, a what they call a open course. You can you can have it as a student. You will have free ECTs. And or if you are a profession, can apply also. So we have a mix between professionals working on companies and students. And can anyone apply listening to this? And yeah, you can. Yeah, for sure. If you want more information, I'm not like super deep on uh, social media, but you can go to my LinkedIn, Tiago Nieres, you will find it, and you have more information about the course. But the idea of the course is just to provide the very basic of uh, of computing science with a technology language called Python. Right. How to extrapolate it to, for different uh, use cases? Uh, I can tell like things such as how a logistic company can actually uh, have a list telling what is the maximum amount of cargo per truck, uh, what is the best route, uh, how can I generate reports, how can I read reports, and this kind of stuff. Very practical in terms of what you gain and what you can actually deploy in your work environment. Of course, we will have some people with biology background. We'll look for biology exercises. We'll have people from marketing. We will look for marketing and so on. So is this an online course or? Uh, it will be presential. Uh, it, this is a partnership with Lozofna University and Matter Dynamics. And Matter Dynamics. All right. So now you know, guys, if you want to do your data science course, check out on Lozofna webpage or, or check with uh, on the LinkedIn of Tiago. Um, one, one of the things that, you know, I have been preparing courses for a bunch of years now is who are you actually targeting this course for? 
who is this course designed for and to whom would you recommend it? Because one of the things I see is that the power of data science, and you could say this for digital transformation, or you could say this to computing and so on, is that when you go to real life companies and you start talking with a man, everyone is so busy, right? Everyone is so busy kind of going through their lives that um, no one is actually... Or, you know, very few people, you know, very few people inside companies actually have the slack to go get very hard uh, skills like data science and start applying them. So who is this person inside a company and what kind of companies would benefit from actually taking people to this course? Okay, um, uh, a disclaimer here. Uh, the purpose of not selling the course is to giving you a new paradigm how you can actually teach something at the academic level with a very efficient way of doing for companies. Uh, what is completely different from universities do. Right. They have like these very standard protocols and contents and they try to deploy as much product as they can with very classical examples. For example, let, let's estimate the mean average time of a, a wheel on a car. It doesn't matter so much, but if I'm telling, let's try to understand the different profiles of users on my website based on the type and the region where they waste more time on the, these kind of things. And you can actually use something called clustering for that. So um, regarding the target, this is the first edition. And um, uh, what we have in mind is the type of people that I found when and uh, when I'm working at Marta Dynamic with clients, mm -hmm. people that they do understand Excel, but they do not translate it to code. And I do believe that Python with other languages will be like a, a must have in the future. So it doesn't make sense anymore that to have like this Excel fire sent by your colleague that you need to download. Open has a C CSV export X, Y, X, Z column. Mm -hmm. When you with two free lines of code, you can do it this autonomously while we are sleeping and have that kind of information for, for a client. For example, counting stock is something that you actually do it manually. You don't need to do that if you have a method that doing that for you because you are linking what you receive and what you are selling, for example. Mm -hmm. So people that have a, a basic sense of Excel is the target. If they don't understand things such as uh, objects, classes, and things like that, it's not an issue at all. What they really need to understand is that it's a course that that goes towards the idea of automation and how to use data science to extrapolate information even when while I'm sleeping because I just want to analyze a PDF report and not all the Excel files that the sales department will sell to me. Right. So this this actually goes in line to what they call the citizen coder or, you know, in this case, the employee being leveraged by code. Um, and how long is this course and when is it starting? Just to wrap it up. OK, so it will happen in April uh, next April. year. It will be 32 hours. Uh, and the goal here is not stopping, which means that what you will get, it's the 32 hours, but we are building a community. And actually, I'm offering some free time. And uh, when I say free, it's actually free to try to help companies to dig in, in their data sets. So imagine that Joao from a company A goes to the course. It, they have this issue with the data set. I will train Joao to solve it. And right. after the, the course, we'll, of course, provide support to Joao to improve. Right. Okay, Joao, it's up to you now. So... A big part of your life is also science and research, right? Yeah. Um, is that the most important thing you do? Uh, and what else is equally crucial to you? Uh, Science-wise? You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, you are a, a, a mix of uh, almost a renaissance man in the way that you are doing science and research. You have a business. You are also into data. You are giving classes. So... Yeah. It's a full spectrum life. Let me know what what is equally crucial to you. People like me at MIT they call a, a, a lab code with a tie. So people that is running experiments on the on the lab with the lab code at the same time is wearing a tie doing pitches and sell things to clients. All right, I, lab I am that kind of approach with a tie. Um, okay. Although ties don't come. Often. Yeah, but it's the same in the, is the idea of uh, <laughs> yeah, business in a business format. Okay, um, so um, so. One of the things that is really important, and I think that is um, 
an advantage because I have a lot, I have a lot of disadvantages, for example, time management. Uh, but one of the advantages that I have been like that is that I usually work on problems that I really know that they, the, the society needs a solution for. And I say society can be a small community, right? Right. So when I dig, when I write a project with colleagues, uh, I actually am very keen on idea to bring either companies or actually trying to write for a grant that actually solves or it will solve a problem. I'm not the kind of guy that is interested in studying the molecular receptor of cell A. Okay, this is not the type of thing that I really like to do, but I'm more interested on trying to understand the best blend, which means the best mixture of biopolymers that can provide you with the eco-friendly packaging that is sustainable and can actually sustain the strengths and strains during the life cycle. So since I am on the warehouse coding, I talk a lot with clients, I know their needs and Quite often, their needs are very general, and you can actually translate that to, to solutions on the on the lab. You know, one of the when I hear you guys uh, speak, people like you today. So today, let me just tell you a quick story here. Today, I was having lunch with the guys at Beyond Vision. So the guys at Beyond Vision, they're building very advanced drones that are also VTOLs. So they they do vertical takeoff and then they they plane like a plane, um, and I and this guy the founder was actually the best student from Nova uh, FCT um, ever. I think he still holds the the record <laughs> from what he told me. But of course, he's also a, a lab coat with a tie, and um, and it's super inspirational. And it's super inspirational because people like you are really trying to push the frontier of science and tech and going to the state of the art, but trying to push that towards the, the market and trying to push that towards companies. How how are things are going? I mean, we have a very small market, right? Where the Portuguese market is small. Um, and now let's go into the whole rant phase of the podcast. <laughs> but I think we should. And and you know, I've been doing this for the last 10 years, supporting startups, talking with startups. So um, so this is really what I'm also passionate about. How do you, you know, how do you see business opportunities here? And how are you guys exploring also business opportunities elsewhere? Right. Um, and what 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 do you think are some of the most you know what the the biggest challenges you have uh in your in your business practice is it talking to companies is companies not having money to invest in 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 you know in in this kind of technology what's what's actually preventing you from becoming uh, you know it's 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 a word that has become now almost a portmanteau but a unicorn in the future Okay, so specific to Portugal, um, this is not, it's a culture. I mean, not, not necessarily, right? We have been having successes uh, in, in Portugal and we now have a bunch of unicorns. Obviously, none of those unicorns have been uh, a unicorn because of the Portuguese market. They all have been unicorns because somehow they have succeeded in the US market and so on. So what are, what, what are you guys doing towards that that vision of becoming a more successful company and what is actually maybe hampering your development because if you talk to any any of any of these founders they have things to say and some of them have said them okay so i will i will share you my take on that um i, I think what you will say it's controversial right uh, i don't want matterdangs to be a successful company uh, what we really want to do is to have our clients as successful as they can um, I like to say that we are Intel, that nobody knows what the chipset is, but everybody buys a laptop with Intel well, chip. You okay. know, it's ever less that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, awesome. I really like to, we like to go to stay in behind of the scenes and trying to help our clients. This is completely different because I can actually score um, a contract with a client with six figures mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that instead of having like, 1,000 clients scoring like contracts of 20 years per month on an API. This is our mindset, which is working with clients to solve their problems 
that can actually deploy in the day the the next day because they know the market or they are solving a liability that they have. This is the kind of thing. Right. So scalability for us, we will never be a unicorn because we're not trying to do that. What we are actually trying to do is to develop our technology and improve it to be standardized as possible. So when you take on problems on uh, food logistics and uh, um, farm logistics and industrial monitoring, your set of tools are easier to deploy, but still you need to follow your our, your client. And by definition of our business model, we cannot scale because it's like a consultancy slash tech consultancy service that we pr provide. So one of the things that I'm telling to the guys that really want to be unicorns, I think it's great. Depends a lot of the type of market and business model that you have. And the other thing is that we actually have operations in six countries and quite often it is a pain in the ass. So with scales, we see unicorns, but you actually need to have like this robust structured team resources that can actually support you to be unicorn because unicorns are very fancy, but they eat a lot. So you need to have like all the things that unicorn needs plus extra because it will take you extra effort. And I think that is the issue in Portugal because everybody aims to be the next unicorn and nobody wants to be like Matter Dynamics. They want, really want to be like this media sensation company that will exist for 10, 20 years. But after that, you'll find like small companies as Matter Dynamics will live longer. So the time, the life expectancy of a startup is three years. You have double it. And we are a team of four now, right? We can scale, descale very quickly. Have, have, can, you, have you been investors? Yeah. Yeah, we haven't been invested and actually we come up with a business model which is quite it is an investment model as well which is that we, when a company see the potential of our technologies they say we need to develop this product and here's what we do we suggest the company don't pay us for the for the product pays for the product and you can have this as investment per project so if i come up with a smart sticker for the, the pharmaceutical industry i have contracts with a, uh, with that company that they have like royalties on that if I sell to others, if they they have like the, the priority to sell the technology if they want so. And actually that is a very nice way to have some pocket money in your pocket. Mm -hmm. So instead of like having like these VCs running to you, you actually find partners that can actually scale. You are providing R&D, they are providing you money to do the R&D. At the same time, if they scale, you scale with them as well. Yeah. But you must have some rents. You must have some some things that you are saying we should improve this for the business landscape or the business uh, scenario companies here do you have some yeah uh so uh, as you can imagine so so one of the things we work with sensors right temperature is a variable that we measure temperature for the, the food industry is completely different the value for the pharmaceutical industry which is completely different from the marketing industry okay but what we do as a tech developer is understand the basics and we try to understand those basics and put one on a box that we call a model. And we try to develop the temperature model of our technology that we call template. And when you go to a client, we, you would tell them, here is a model that you can deploy. Of course, you need to tune, but we'll help you out to tune. So we try to reduce the effort of our introduction in a client by having these very good models that you can easily show off to a client. And after that, we work with them to improve something that is a specialization that they need for their sector, for example. So one of the things that I see here and talking a little bit about Steam uh, now is one of the biggest constraints for companies to move to the next stage is talent. And uh, one of the biggest sources of talent, at least here in Portugal, has been universities. Um, so uh, do you think Steam students are prepared for the future of work and do you think that they are worried about their careers early on and most than that do you think that we are training enough people into hardcore engineering like aerospace electronics um, computer science and, and so on as we should be doing um, and what's your vision for for that okay regarding steam students one thing that i think is starting to increase and it took us like 20 years comparing to united states is that we have like students on their first year or second year of university doing summer internships mm -hmm. 
uh, either promoted by companies or by the university themselves. That is really cool. First and second years. Yeah, first and second years. You have like I, I do believe that Nova University it's mandatory to do them. They should have like at least eight weeks of internship uh, at companies. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really really cool. Why? Because at my during my time I didn't have the opportunity. And when you have like and you finish your master. You finish your master, you know a lot, a lot about books and academics, but you don't have like this real experience. And there are this set of soft skills that you only learn by doing in real environments that any books can translate to you. Maybe you have an experienced professor that can tell you about them, but still having like this, how to respond on Slack, the importance of uh, building a, um, a, a way to monitor your project and things like that is something that you will not see in a in a computer science classroom, for example. This is really important. And regarding their preparation, they are really, really well prepared. I don't know if they are really prepared for the things that matter the most, but they go to interviews and they check the glass door. They talk with their peers. They try to understand what is the dynamics of your company. They try to understand the products that you have. They often make and like, if you push for them during the interview, they actually, they try to do questions that are more technical advanced comparing to five years or so. This is something that I, I, I really noticed during interviews. And the, 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 the final answer is that should we somehow constrain the amount of course in Portugal to try to define the shape of Portugal if you should have more, more, more medical doctors or more lawyers or more engineers? I do believe yes, because okay, quite often... The internet is, is going to stop for us today. All right, very controversial opinion. So why is that? Um, I will tell you why. Because quite often what we see is that people are doing courses that they don't have the opportunity to explore in parallel with other courses. So I do prefer to have like a system that you can do a double minor on arts and computer science, for example. Mm-hmm. And you actually have a case of someone in Portugal that did uh, medicine and computer science at the same time as well which is really, really push, but she did it anyway with high marks. And if you can actually rethink the way that engineers are training and also rethink the, the other way, other the, uh, fields of knowledge that can um, provide their education as well, you'll be in a very good position. And once again, um, you should try to provide the freedom of people to learn what they want, but you can actually do this between mandatory and elective courses. So I don't believe it's fair like for a student in a five years um, course only have uh, elective and mandatory uh, options on the fourth and fifth year. It should be start on year one, right? You should pick, for example, philosophy and computer science 101 at the first year, for example. And that is a way to shift the knowledge of people towards team, which is more valuable, but at the same time, giving them the freedom to tune their pathway as they wish. Shouldn't we be going earlier on? Because by the time you choose your university degree, arguably, it might be too late. It might be that, you know, you are already in the rabbit hole for design or, you know, you know, law or engineering or whatever it is. And then you realize that, you know, it's kind of late into the game to change. And for lots of, for lots of people, effectively, it is because we have a system in Portugal, as you know, that if you don't study math until um, the end of high school, then you're basically screwed because you cannot choose any other engineering, science related, even management, right? So, um, yeah, that's that's one. So shouldn't we be digging just a little bit, uh, they, they, you know, talking with kids a little bit sooner uh, when they are in the maybe 10th grade? And, and the second thing that you told the other day was that because now kids they are learning by on their own over YouTube uh, or online how to code, they're getting to the university much better prepared than you know when I guess a few years ago when we got to the university ourselves. Um, but they're doing this on their own mostly, right? They're not doing this because it's part of the curriculum of the the high school because it's not right. You can go through high school without, you know actually writing a single line of code so how would you take that 
Okay, uh, the first thing is that they are learning from YouTube, not only code, but other things. For example, there are very good YouTube channels regarding chemistry, biology, uh, yeah. even um, yeah, uh, again, design. For uh, sure, it's there. If, yeah. yeah. Uh, Product management, by the yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine that as, as well. Uh, the, the, so the thing here is that um, I think the problem is different, which is are people going away for a STEAM education because they don't like it? or they are afraid of mathematics. For example, if they are afraid of some subjects, you need to understand why they are afraid of them. Because I'm not very uh, sure, I'm not very sure if someone at the age, I don't know, 14 or something like that, is going to humanities because he really likes humanities or he's trying to avoid like science and economics that will find mathematics on the process. So you need to deal with the boogeyman understand if, the, if there is a boogeyman and how to solve it if there is one. This is one thing. Yeah. The other thing that kids are learning because they are machines to learn, right? Once again, they don't have the myelin completely developed. They are trying to think the next big thing. They are very excited with everything, very depressed in the very next moment, especially in the teenage years. And they are trying to do what their brain they needs to do, okay? And once again, if you think like in social media, what kids really like, like videos with a lot of stimulus because they really want to retrieve all that visual information because their computer will compute all that thing and they try and they will be like releasing dopamine and that is the way of doing it. But if you can actually, if you can actually reach kids and achieve the same level of dopamine, which is some, something such as self-resilience that can provide that, autoesteem can provide that, you can actually retrieve the kids' attention. So if you, if you are a nerd, you really like to code, show some videos of code. But if you are really eager to, to learn about design, show how to work with Illustrator, for example, things like that, and you retain that. But the problem is that the, the our education system doesn't take that in consideration because in a class of 20, everybody's equal. And you really need to tune different experience because you have different personalities Absolutely. and different stage of development. Absolutely. And it is something that I, I do believe that uh, schools should do it in parallel. And it is something that you should take in, in specialization with kids at younger age, of course. Right. So working with kids um, in, in specific cohorts for... For, for what exactly? For like, let's say... So there is... Um, so in psychology, they have like this uh, ocean, which is like uh, five big traits. Uh, one of them is openness, right? Is this right. something that you can actually measure? This is not like the bullshit that you see in your social media. This is like very deep understanding of the traits of the of the person. And you can actually... They can actually can relate regarding the type of personality that you have, the type of education, or at least what you would like to learn in the future. And they, they do a simple experiment. If you have like in the, in the ocean, the O is for openness. If you, have, if you have like a big O, which means like your trait in op uh, openness, it's very high. doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's the way that you are. What they will try to do is that, okay, you really like to socialize. Let's learn how to code in a classroom. Oh, you don't like to socialize as much. Right. So let's start with videos and we will try to give you some social interaction in the very end where you can show what you can do. So this kind of thing that you do regarding the, the type of content that you are interested in most and the way that you deliver it, it's very, very successful. So just to, to they, they claim in their studies that after five years of this strategy, the kids that, that follow this strategy have GPA points higher than 0.5 uh, comparing to the other ones, which is a lot, okay? Mm -hmm. If you have three, you have 3.5 in the scale from zero to five, which is nice to have yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's like... 20 to 10 percent mm -hmm. so um you know still going back to to students and 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 how they're working with companies nowadays you talked about internships um so how do you think companies should embrace them is it and internships is not this is this is a two-way street it's not just about universities uh, searching for internships, not just about you know kids at university searching for internships, also companies being more open to have well-structured uh, summer programs, which for many many years were not a thing here, as you know, and they're still not not a thing for lots of companies. So, what can do? Uh, what can companies do to embrace uh, students earlier on? And I guess uh, in your company, you're also doing that. 
Okay, so one of the things like big corporations do it and I say, man, maybe companies with 10 to 15 employees are doing the same. It's like these trainee programs, right? Right, trainee programs. So you but have that, like this batch of students going to your to your place like during six months or so. Of course, you will Andy pick the best ones at the end and you probably you will get a, a promotion to it. This is one of they do it. Uh, there are government incentives that you can actually use to hire people like right. EFP, uh, something like that right. as well. And other thing that companies often do, they do not do because they don't want, do not want to do it because I think they do not know they are allowed to do it is to go to a, a professor in university and tell me in your class, which are the best ones that I can talk with? Of course, if I'm interested in coding, um, I'm going to computer science in technical, for example. I will try to understand what is the the, the, the responsible professor for data science or I don't know data structures and things like that, and ask him. There are are there students that you would like to recommend to me, and actually can retrieve that and filter that information. Um, and you you do it this uh, online, of course, with LinkedIn, but it's not like a filtering information. Here you can actually have. Uh, a bond with the university that will are end hunting with the recommendation with a professor that had taught them, uh, assessed them, and so on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I I guess it gets easier if you are a professor yourself, just just to do that. And as a professor, I know that's also part. And university, uh, they need to have the course that they teach the lecture that they provide and the responsible professor for that lecture. So you will easily find an email. And I can tell you that because sometimes I got a lot of spam and, and it, that is an issue as well. But quite often I have companies telling me uh, we have like this open position. Can you recommend people or can you share that information during your lecture? And I just do it. Okay. And, and it's working. So um, you sent us a photo of your, uh, of yourself with Newton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so explaining to our listeners, uh, Newton is Tiago's dog. Where did you get the the idea to name your dog? Newton? So my dog, my, uh, the breed is a Labrador, which is my favorite breed. And uh, um, as you can imagine, uh, Newton, <laughs> um, it's a funny story, but because he's very, very energetic. And there is Newton's law, which means that the force equals to mass times acceleration. acceleration. So Labradors, they can can be quite big. Uh, and they are very energetic, as you can imagine. There is a lot of power on that dog sometimes. So that comes the the name of Newton. Okay, powerful dog. All right, guys. So it's halfway through our podcast. Let me just take a quick pause here to remind you that if you want to hear some interesting topics next year, we're preparing for you excellent courses and workshops. And if you want to be part of it, uh, you can fill the form in the chat and help us choose the most interesting topics for 2022 in the product area. So my, my colleague will be sending you um, the link where you can choose the most interesting topics that you want to learn about in 2022 by the best product experts in the world. And our promise is to invite them to Portugal or at least to organize online workshops with them. Cool. So getting to products, because that's this is a theoretically a product podcast. Um, can you tell us how Matter Dynamics is working nowadays? So we had a conversation the other day, and of course, I know a little bit about the company. Um, but are you guys looking for customers who are uh, st- still on that thesis of digital transformation and helping them go through digital transformation processes, right? Yeah. So in a few words, what Matter Dynamics do is to convert non-electronic objects into smart units. Uh, this means that we look for pallets and warehouses, uh, bottles on a store, and with a sticker, we can actually turn them smart, which means that can sense data such as temperature, pressure, uh, have an ID, put it on a blockchain. And in the very hand, we create a digital twin, which means that all that information goes to a cloud service, right? If Zuckerberg was here, he was telling us that Matter Dynamics is putting physical assets on the metaverse, okay? We don't like this uh, uh, idea of metaverse because of that. It's misleading. But what we do is to create digital twins and you put that information on a cloud service and you as a manager or as a, a user, a client, can access anywhere. 
Um, do, do to that, why we need to do that? So one of the things that um, physical operations, they are human-based, so they are a lot prone to errors. And what we do is to help companies to reduce those errors. So when you are shipping a container to a certain client, you want to guarantee that the container was in the right truck. You can actually calculate how, how long it will take to arrive to the client. And as soon as arrive, you have like a proof stamp that it was arrived. And at the same time, you can build on top of that, having a server experience with your client that will notify them as a, uh, with a WhatsApp, for example. And in the very hand, you are doing logistics in your warehouse because you are saying, I sold one, that's that. And end of story, let's do it another way. And uh, during the process, what we do is to, to look for these special non-electronic objects that can actually provide uh, unity across the supply chain. So imagine any product that you have, the only unique unity that you will find is the package of the product. So if you, for example, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola starts on the factory, you have the bottle, it goes to the retailer, it goes to the smaller retailer, it goes to the supermarket, it goes to your home, and still you'll drink Coca-Cola and in the end you have the bottle. So let's try to find value for the unity on the clause on the in, on the supply chain. And of course, with the value for us is to solve logistic problems for the for our clients. Right. And the common denominator being the packaging. Um, yeah, because it's this thing that will preserve across the, the supply chain. Sometimes it's something that is detachable and you do a marketing play. For example, we have this client in the Netherlands that sells um, flowers with, with bouquets and the bouquet itself is something that you can store uh, audio message on paper. So it is something for a marketer that can use and you can actually leverage on top of that. But the thing is that we look for the packaging because we want because it's the the component of your product that will be resilient across the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Resilient. Okay, so one of the things twenty twenty two is bringing at least here in Portugal is five G. Uh, we had a, f a few conversations before, but since the technology is coming anyways, are you bullish about five G? and any other technology specifically? I, I mean, we talked about the blockchain and how, how is that going to impact your business? I, I believe that blockchain is impacting already a lot already. of business already. In, in your, your, your business specifically? Uh, yeah, because we are doing traceability based on blockchain. Right. So it is really... So but if it's, you are it's still a niche for lots of customers or is still th this this is going to be the go-to technology for traceability? I will give you an example that was a big issue four years ago and with new APIs from different service providers, it was completely solved. So imagine that you want to buy rice from South Asia. Right. Up to the moment that that batch of rice arrives to Portugal, that you can actually package it in small, uh, smaller uh, dosage, you will have at least three uh, softwares to do the traceability that they should be complained with each other because if you have like some problem, you need to show that data to someone. That's the end of it. You just have each batch in a blockchain and you monitor the transactions and that's it. And you can do it is with a web browser just calling the NAPI. This is very, very useful nowadays here in the blockchain. So blockchain uh, related with traceability is already implemented and I do believe it's a question of scale right now. Regarding 5G, it's running a Ferrari, right? As soon as you have that amount of energy and power and the communication uh, power, you can actually unlock different things because your time to respond to a command is much, much shorter. But once again, I will, it's really cool that we will have like 5G, for example, in Lisbon, but there are some business cases for matter dynamics in uh, North Alentejo, for example, that want to address it and we don't have any coverage. And a good example is, for example, Monsanto. Monsanto is a very nearby Lisbon and there are some places that you don't have connectivity at all. At all, yeah, I know so that. So if you have like um, a wildfire in Monsanto, uh, it is really hard to detect it with a sensor because you don't have information for the sensor to send to somewhere. And this is the other things that um, 5G will not solve. But hopefully, it will strengthen the point that uh, communication covers. Uh, it's a, a real issue as well. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that lots of companies are talking about nowadays, and 
you know, earlier today when I had lunch with uh, Beyond Vision, they were telling me that the, the global chip supply shortage is actually an issue for them. They are with commands, with waiting lists for two and three years because that's how long it's taking. Um, how is that impacting your business? <laughs> a lot, a lot. Uh, we have stock. Uh, we are the, one of the reasons that we are pushing our computer science slash coding uh, software part uh, coding uh, part of our uh, service is based on that because we are we have stock but we'll run out of stock easily so we need to be how very can careful. we solve that should we kind of be building decentralized production factories here in europe yeah the thing is that it's not only the time because the time is a, a serious constraint but even if you solve that it's the price that you are paying so containers have tripled their values so easily you are pushing like Increase of values for the client, forty percent, fifty percent, easily, easily, easily. Could could you could you, I mean, conceptually, build the kind of technology that you're buying in in Asia, Eastern Asia? Could could we do it here in Europe? Do we have the tech to do it? You have the tech, but you don't have the infrastructure to do it. So, for example, Samsung will uh, create a new brand factory in the United States to solve that issue to to reduce the dependence of South Asia. Um, to 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 produce chips, things such mm. as. Man, we should be addressing that. All right. So, which books are you recommending your friends to read nowadays? And you okay, know, you, you you told me about some books, but I want you. Yeah. Uh, so of course you, you you should read *Sapiens*. But one of the books that I would l- really like to to recommend it's the, from a guy that I really like, which is David Goggins. He's a kind of lunatic. If you follow the, him in Instagram, you'll see it. But it's um, the book is the uh, it can't hurt me. It's a, a book about uh, resilience and how to face issues, but at the same time be accountable to them. So quite often we like to think that bad things happen to us, and it's poor luck or um, not having luck at all when those things um, happen to us. But he has like this mindset being accountable for the mistakes that you do in your life, not because he's like trying to push himself easier because the opposite is trying to push himself harder because he really want to understand why he's failing so much and there are a lot of things that he do it is not any word so you can easily see like um, stories that they told and there are videos on instagram supporting that like running marathons with broken toes things like this he's an ex-navy seal he was a very obese guy when he was in a young age he completely transformed his body He's very uh, focus oriented, and he's always cont- he's never satisfied with himself, and he's pushing harder and harder. So he he holds like the world record for push-ups and things like that. Yeah, and it is a, a kind of mindset that we need to admire because otherwise we'll find someone in YouTube with pink, call uh, with a red or uh, pink uh, uh, hair, and we'll try to do the opposite. It is satisfy yourself. And David Gong is the opposite. Never satisfy yourself. Try to push harder as you can. And in the very end, we'll improve a lot. All right. So that is also an stoic way of living your life, I guess. Um, you also have a beautiful book with an amazing title, Elementary Math and Computer <laughs> Science with Python. You know, I, I, don't see, I, don't, I don't know if you have seen the meme on, um, on LinkedIn or any other social media platform where someone asks, uh, please tell me about the book that made you cry. And someone answered data structure, uh, data structure for Java, second edition. <laughs> so uh, elementary math for computer science with Python by Eric Bennett doesn't seem that hard, uh, but tell us a little bit about why you're recommending this book. Okay. Uh, I think, this is the opposite way of doing on YouTube. If you go to YouTube, you're going like search like Python tutorial, Python course, and you'll find everything that should want the, the any for, uh, t- teacher that will tell you, but you will never understand the basics of it. So um, one thing that I really try to do as an exercise to young students is that multiply four digits by four digits quickly and they cannot do it. Why? Because they only memorize to do multiply one digit by other digits and sum all the experience that they, they encounter on the... So you're talking the, about the algorithm of multiplication. Yeah, they don't understand it. So mm. you it is really hard, right? It right. is really hard to multiply like 200, uh, 2025 times 1713, for example. 
it's really hard to do it. That guy explains how easy that can be and how can you actually understand the basics of it. And just because you are using Python, let's do it in Python in a simpler way. And this is what engineers in Netflix and Google do it with things such as like algorithm optimization. It's not like trying to reduce the code like from 1000 lines of code to 300. Is to have like four of them, but understand very well what you are doing. Right, that's code optimization, right? That's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the beautiful thing. So the other day I was actually watching also a YouTube channel and someone's talking about how Doom and uh, their uh, first generation 3D games, they were using 3D rendering before GPUs were available, right? And when the CPU available on PCs was, you know, was as much as maybe my pocket calculator. So... Um, the, you know, the coding optimizations were, um, based on, on building hash tables of the, the three, the, the, you know, the three, the trigonometry of the, of the computation without actually having it go through the CPU, right? So they would actually hard code the, the trigonometric tables, um, so that it would take less time to do. Uh, computations that were being done, uh, you know, quite frequently. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyways, elementary math for computer science with Python. I guess this is also part of the syllabus of your course. Not really. Not this is really. something that you should buy during the Christmas Eve and the reading, and that's it. All right. I could not think about a better Christmas Eve present myself uh, for my own geek me. But uh, be caution if we want to offer this to uh, someone in the family. Just make sure that it's the right person. So, <laughs> thank you, Tiago. This was probably the geekiest, geekiest conversation we had for the last few shows. It was great having you with us. Um, also, thank you for, for joining Productize Podcast. If you enjoyed your stay, give us your review on Apple Podcasts uh, or Spotify and share this episode with friends and colleagues. You also have show notes and more episodes at productize.medium.com. And you can join our community where we share the links um, in the chat today. So I always wanted to do this. Yay. <laughs> I'm not sure if you are actually listening to this, but if you are, this was my Huyunish moment. Uh, our next podcast will be with uh, also face-to-face. And it will be with um, my uh, professor uh, from my, my own course, my alma mater, uh, uh, Professor Miguel Diaz. And he's going to be with us next week. Uh, professor Miguel Diaz is a computer science professor. He's also one of the, the people that was behind the very first uh, computer graphics uh, courses here in Portugal and he was uh, the lead researcher at Microsoft for uh, natural language processing and many other cool technologies that he's going to speak during the next show. So see you around guys, see you soon and enjoy your holiday if you are in Portugal. It's the 1st of December, it's Portugal's National Day and you should definitely uh, check it out. Bye bye.